are in the Beatitudes. And let me say a quick prayer. And uh, let's dig in, shall we? Jesus, thank you for your words. Thank you for your teachings. Our minds and our souls and our lives are truly enriched. And this world is truly better. As we listen, understand, and take heed to follow what you teach us. So continue to do that for us today. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Say this with me. Happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. As we have done in the past, there's a couple elements. There's this first portion element, which is the peacemakers element. And then there's the second element, which is the children of God element. And I'd like to go over both of those to see if we can flesh out a little bit more of what this means. We've been going through seven weeks now. This is week seven of the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are not attitudes that we are to be, but they are characteristics or descriptors of those who are in God's kingdom. The people who exemplify the very ethics, morals, values, teachings, behaviors that Jesus is hoping the world uh, takes upon itself to live into the way that God has desired. And I've been reflecting and going back over some of those teachings, and I feel like there's a brief summary from poor in spirit to the meek to uh, all of those, all the way up to this particular point. And I feel like the summative teaching or the, the summative way that we, we can maybe figure out what is this all about is this phrase, can't we all just get along? And there's conflict, there's challenge, there's compassion, there's mercy, but all of these things seem to be predicated on some dysfunction in the world, something that's not happening, not working the way it's supposed to. And if we do our best to try to exemplify some of these characteristics, then we are making things a little bit better. Now, this idea, uh, can't we all just get along, is going to be extremely central to this beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And I think, um, I thought it would be good to start with a little bit of our symbolism of peace. Now, many of us know this symbol of peace uh, and figure out where does this come from and see if we can maybe flesh out a little bit of the connotations that we think about whenever we hear the word peace. This symbol, um, if you look it up, apparently comes from 1958 and it came after a time of nuclear disarmament from the British and it has these two symbols. The first symbol, and some of you in this room might know this better than I do, uh, the first symbol are the two arms down with the flag to symbolize the uh, nuclear symbol. And the other symbol is straight up, hands up, one hand down to mean disarmament. And that symbol or those movements, those signs, have then evolved into our modern day peace sign. The idea that now that this weapon of mass destruction has been disarmed, we are moving into an era or a season of peace. I thought that was really fascinating. Uh, another symbol of peace that we have used in our culture that comes from uh, our culture as well as comes from the Bible is the symbol of the dove and the olive branch. Now, for those of you who know your Bible and you know a little bit of some of the religious history of this symbol, you know that this comes from the time where Noah, on the flood, and think about that for a moment, a symbol of extreme chaos, extreme disruption, where we put this beautiful picture of a 
boat with animals on it. We don't put any pictures of what kind of cleanup was necessary after the animals, nor do we put any pictures of like dead people floating around on all the waters. This is a really catastrophic event. And the dove is sent off into the world to see if there is any land. A picture that the chaos, the thing that has been so destructive, has now subsided. And we're now able to settle again onto the land. Uh, Here's a picture of um, that symbol, that image, the dove and the olive branch carved into some stones in the catacombs of Domitia in Rome. Somewhere around the 2nd to 9th century, we're not exactly sure of the dating, but even back then, this was a symbol of peace. And I thought this was really telling because for those of you who know, the catacombs, by the way, catacombs of uh, Domitia, nine miles of caves underneath the ground. And if for those of you who've been to Cappadocia or have studied a little bit about this in all sorts of different places, there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of miles underground of caves that are just woven throughout uh, a lot of different countrysides of people escaping persecution, escaping um, horrific regimes. And so to see this symbol underneath the ground where people are literally hiding for their lives is really kind of touching and moving. Is there going to be a time of peace? Is there going to be a time when all of this chaos is set aside and we can now return back to normal life? The Greek word for peace is the word erene. We actually uh, met a girl, Danielle and I did, uh, named erene um, at a little conference a while ago. And I thought that was kind of neat that somebody thought of this name. And, uh, of course, it's associated with the goddess and figured that it was a good name to name their daughter. Um, here she is with Plutos, which means wealth. And the word Irene has the connotation or even the denotation of calm. But it's this idea of absence of war. There's a time of security and prosperity. And there is a peace that is brought about by Irene. Now, this is going to be really, really important because the Greek word Irene for peace is very similar to the Latin or the Roman word for peace, which is the word pax. And for those of you who know Pax, wherever he is, there he is representing in the back. <clears throat> so this is Pax. And I love that our community has beautiful names for all of the children that we have here. And I love Pax's name because his name means peace. And every time he's crawling on the ground, I'm so tempted to just say peace on earth. So um, I know, I'm sorry. So the cover graphic that I thought would have been, should have been this cover graphic, because this is Todd and Alyssa, because happy are the peacemakers, because they made a peace. Some of you are giving me a courtesy laugh. I appreciate it. Now, the word peace is actually, the word pax is actually utilized throughout history. And if you take a look at Greco-Roman history, the word pax, or the word peace, uh, has been used to declare a period of time that is really important for those of us who are followers of Jesus or who read the Bible, because the New Testament, the events and the activities and the writing of the New Testament take place in the period of time, whereas there's this significant era of history in Roman history called the Pax Romana. One writer um, wrote this, the reign of Augustus, from 27 BCE to 14 CE, brought peace and security to both politics and trade. 
And what that basically means is the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was uh, set forth a cultural and socioeconomic and political reality where now people could travel, they could trade without all of the potential fears or worries that they were going to be robbed or that there's going to be war breaking out or any of that political instability. And so we have this season that is really important for us that has a lot of implications and a lot of study that needs to go into finding out why is this so important. One of the reasons why in your Bible, Paul, the writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, is able to do all of the traversing that he does across sea and across land, many scholars, I think, would unanimously suggest that is due to the peace of Rome. The idea that the conflicts between nations and states and polises, cities, all that stuff, was quelled, was squelched because of the Roman Empire. And that was due primarily to Augustus and then the consecutive reigns throughout there. However, there seems to be some sort of paradoxical understanding to the Pax Romana. And one ancient writer summed it up in this particular way. Peace is the inevitable consequence of the achievement of world empire by virtue of the simple fact that there is no one left to fight. And in Augustan ideology, the themes of universal rule and the Pax Augusta, which is also known as the Pax Romana, go hand in hand. Do you hear what Virgil is saying? He's saying that, yes, we can call this a peace. Yes, we can call this stability. Yes, we can call this the Pax Augusta or the Pax Romana. But the reality is, the only reason why we have peace is because of the brutal, suppressive wars and regimes that Rome essentially wiped out. It was war after war, conquest after conquest, taking over after taking over, that ultimately led to peace. And it wasn't, catch this, it wasn't necessarily about a reconciliation of all of these nation-states. It was about the domination and the elimination of those political powers that instituted the peace of Rome. Now, I recognize that what I just said, there's some scholarly debate as to what degree or how much and all that kind of stuff. But most of the literature that I've read and most of the literature that you've read seems to indicate that there is a really strong strain of truth to the only reason why we had peace is because of the idea that when Rome took over and began an empire, they begin to wipe other people out. And not necessarily in genocidal terms, but in political terms. And now there's no one left to fight. Now, this shouldn't surprise us from a historical perspective, because we actually have some of these ideas or some of these concepts codified in our own Bible. Um, Isaiah chapter 9, one of the most famous passages for the declaration of Jesus coming to earth, has this in it. For unto us, to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now those words highlighted in yellow, prince and government, is actually the Hebrew word sar, which means commander. Somebody who is in charge. Somebody who has taken dominion. So, in ancient history, both in our Bibles as well as in Roman history, we have the idea of peace coming to people 
because somebody is in charge. Because somebody has set forth a regime of peace, whether that's quelling other rivals, other people, whatever that may be, that seems to be one of the primary ways that we understand peace. When doing some research for this, I came across a modern author who suggested that we are slowly coming to the end of the Pax Americana. The idea that the reason why there is peace or stability in the world is because America has the position of being a superpower. Now, I don't want to get into the merits or the political implications of that. I mention that simply to say that this person in their writing is pulling into their definition of peace the very same ideas that the ancients understood about peace. Somebody's in charge, there's a power that is, and that power establishes peace in this world. And the reason why this is important is because when we get to this particular beatitude, and it should not surprise you at all, the peacemaker idea is not going to come from a position of power. And when we talk about our ideas or our ideological philosophies about peace, it can be very easy for us to slip into the exact same idea as our ancestors. If I'm in charge and I'm in power, then there will be peace. Does that make sense? This carries with us for all throughout history. And I think just my own musings, it comes from a place of human impulse. The reality that I think we all have said to ourselves at one particular time or another, if I were in charge, everything would be great. So, that's some of the ideas and that's some of the connotations that I'm going to suggest that we have pulled in with this idea of peace. However, when we get to the idea of peacemaking in this particular beatitude, I'm going to ask one question. Is it really, one way of thinking about it, the absence of something? Or is another way of thinking about peace and peacemaking the presence of something? Is it the absence, meaning I have pushed away all of conflict, all of my enemies have gone away, all of the realities that are going to come and threaten me, those are gone? Is it peace because all of those things are gone and away? Or is it possible that another way of thinking about peace is to think about the very presence of something that should have been there that wasn't there before? And this is what I'm going to suggest is the rub, the twist, the turn, the nuance of the idea of happy are those who are peacemakers. The Hebrew word for peace, many of you already know, is the word shalom. Now, the word shalom has all sorts of huge implications, huge definitions. You've heard us say this before from uh, our teachings that all of these words have bring in all sorts of beautiful connotations, and denotations, and experiences. Um, this is one that just came to mind from Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us, and the NRSV translates this, the word whole, but it's actually the word shalom. It's made us whole. It's made us shalom, and by his bruises we are healed. And if you take a look at this word shalom, wholeness, and peace, it has soundness, wholeness, safeness, health, prosperity. Um, the word Solomon is actually the name, Hebrew name Shlomo. You can hear the word shalom in his name. Prosperity comes from 
shalom. This is actually what we pray every time we do the blessing over the children. Uh, May God set upon you his shalom. And this isn't just about the absence of conflict. This is about the very presence of our children experiencing completeness, soundness, wholeness, safeness, health, and prosperity. It's a beautiful prayer that the very fullness of health and the very fullness of identity comes upon the person to whom you pray. May God set upon you his peace. There's a little bit of a side note here if you're interested. It's called the Aaronic Benediction. And for those of you who remember the Exodus story when Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, Aaron is down with the people. What has happened to the people down there? Revelry and all sorts of chaos is happening down there. And ultimately, they come together and decide, where is this Moses? And they say, hey, we should make a God because we don't know where this Moses is. And who's in the midst of it? Aaron. And there's this passage in Exodus 32 where uh, Aaron essentially acquiesces to the people. And, he, and the people come to him and he kind of just says, well, okay, I guess so. And God comes to him. He's a little upset about this. Moses is like, what the heck happened? And Aaron says this. Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire. Out came this calf. Now, the passivity of this passage has always perplexed people or caused people to be, have commentary around it. Some rabbinic Jewish interpretations have suggested it's very appropriate for us to call the Aaronic benediction the Aaronic benediction after Aaron because here in this passage, what is he doing? He was caught in chaos and he was just simply trying to keep the peace. Now, I have a lot of questions and problems with that because it seems like this is a complete abdication of responsibility. But nonetheless, that's part of the reason why Aaron is held up as a peacemaker. And when you look up Judaism and rabbinics and peacemaking, you run into Aaron because of this. Given the definition of shalom, given the definition of peace and wholeness and what things are supposed to be, health, prosperity, completeness... I'm going to suggest a little play on words here. Peacemaking, according to Jesus and according to these definitions, is not the absence of something. It is actually the presence of something. It is putting back together again that which is no longer whole, no longer complete, no longer the way it's supposed to be. In other words, I would call it peacemaking. The pieces that are broken, the pieces that have been shattered, set aside, as if you pick up a broken glass or a broken plate, something that is precious to you, and you grab this piece, and you grab this piece, and you put it together again. So it's my own interpretive play on words, but I'm hoping this image sticks with us as a way of thinking about peacemaking. Peacemaking, again, is not just the absence It's the presence. It's the putting together. 
refixing, what the Hebrew tradition calls tikkun olam, to repair the world. And for that, it requires conflict. It requires us, unlike other definitions, to not go away from conflict, to not dismiss it, to not push it aside. It actually means we must engage with it. I found this quote online that I thought was apropos. The avoidance of conflict may keep us safe, but it does not solve our problems. And what I'm going to suggest then is that peace or peacemaking is not about the absence of conflict. It is what we do in its presence. It is you and I working hard and all of these beatitudes and all of these teachings about Jesus are hard. We are standing in the gap. We sit in between. We actually engage with whatever conflict, dysfunction, disorder, absence of health, absence of wholeness, we actually move towards it. Sit in its middle and try to work out how do we put these pieces of the puzzle back together again. In other words, we enter into the danger zone. Some people talk about this in business as well as psychology, and I know, I know you totally need to hear it, so okay. Now, for those of you who have no idea, you are more whole than the rest of us. Okay, so now this idea of pursuing peace, wholeness in the midst of conflict comes again with the, um, with the possibility that Jesus is perhaps quoting the Psalms yet again as he has done before. Come, my children. And notice that phrase, children. It's going to be the same word that Jesus uses there in the Beatitudes, for they will be called children of God. Listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil. Do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Run after it. Chase it. Look for it. Figure out how you can engage in all of these conflicts, challenges, dysfunctions, and figure out how you can create peace, wholeness, put the pieces of the puzzle back together again. This, my friends, is my suggestion of the definition, peacemaking. Not from power, not from if I were in charge, then everything would be okay but from a position of seeing the brokenness in the world, of seeing the dysfunction in the world, and saying somewhere in there, there's work to be done for the pieces of that broken puzzle to be put back together, to form the original design that God intended. This is the hard work of peacemaking. And when you do psychology work, when you do business and leadership work, there is this ethic that follows right along with this, is that when you see dysfunction happen, engage. Don't just let it sit there. Peace does not come by ignoring the conflict. 
Peace in your relationships does not come by ignoring the passive-aggressive behavior. Peace in your relationships does not come by saying, I will deal with that later. Peacemaking comes when you say, that needs to be engaged with. That will be toxic. That will be dysfunctional. That is going to ruin me, my heart, my soul. It's going to ruin us. It's going to disintegrate our business or our organization. I want to now engage. I don't know if I have all the answers. I don't even know if I understand fully everything. But the hard work of peacemaking begins when I'm going to seek it out. Pursue it. Engage with it. Now, this definition, my friends... Um, I believe falls right into part two of the beatitude, which is to say, happy are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Children of God. Now, what does this mean? Children is an English term that is translated actually two different Greek words. Here is an example from Romans chapter eight, where the word children is used in both portions but there are actually two different Greek terms behind the English. Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Now, those two definitions seem to have a connotation throughout the rest of the Bible as somebody who is in character or in nature of the parent versus somebody who is simply born or an inheritor of what that parent has to give to them. In other words, the first definition of children of God is somebody who is actually involved in advancing what the father desires and wants to. You will hear this term actually when it comes to rabbis and disciples, teachers and students. Students will be called my sons. Why? Because even though the rabbi did not give birth to the disciple, the disciple is advancing, moving forward what the rabbi's teaching is. The second different definition are those who receive. They are the inheritors of the parents or the father. Does anybody want to guess what Matthew chapter 5, which word is being used there? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Those people who are in alignment and who advance the very purposes and the ideas of the heavenly father. Those people who have taken it upon themselves to go push and pursue the peace that God has designed and intended for this world. That is our identity. That is what happens. And this is why we are happy, because we get to carry it on. We get to be that representative. We get to push that agenda forward into this world. Other passages that seem to sum this up. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Here in Ephesians chapter 2, those two separated people come together once again. That which has been separated, that which has been set apart because of dysfunction or whatever, now gets brought together. The word used to describe that is the word peace. In other words, this peace is equal to reconciliation, 
and restoration. Happy are the peacemakers. Those of us who seek out restoration, wholeness, because we will be called children of God, those people who advance those purposes, who advance that agenda in this world. There's a couple images that I wanted to close on just to share with you that I think sum up some different nuances of this teaching. The first comes from a guy by the name of David Hayward, and he's called the Naked Pastor, and he has drawn this cartoon, which kind of sums up for me a little bit this beautiful expression of Jesus trying to bring things back together again. Whereas many of us, in our impulse, trying to keep things out and separated. There's another image that I think sums this up. This is an image um, that comes from Burning Man. And for those of you who don't know what Burning Man is, maybe we'll take a field trip one day. (laughs) One big, wild, crazy festival out in the middle of the desert. Um, And while it has all sorts of different reputations, one of the reputations that it has is the creation of really stunning, thoughtful art. And if you take a look at this image, the outside skeleton of people, back to back, heads lowered, you can tell that the people are in pain. They have been separated. Something is coming between them. They are no longer talking face to face. They're no longer connecting. They're no longer engaged with one another. But inside, there is a child, something within them that says, but I long to be connected. There's something broken here. There's a reconciliation that I really actually am yearning for. And I'm hoping for. And so oftentimes in these kinds of situations and circumstances, and I am guilty of this too, peace means I'm not dealing with it. And I would be better off completely avoiding the conflict than I would at the active, hard, engaging work of making shalom in this relationship. This is one of my favorite images. It's really, it's really actually kind of moving and powerful. So my friends, this is my question. According to ancient definitions and traditions, peace comes at the existence of power and the ignoring of other people that are going to cause us ill. But peacemaking is about recognizing that there are moments and situations and circumstances in life that are broken and we are happy that we get to engage, that we get to work, that we get to learn and figure out how to put these things back together again, how to take brokenness and make it whole, how to take hurt and pain and dysfunction and make it back to beauty and creativity. In other words, happy are the peacemakers, those who are putting the pieces back together again. My prayer for us is that we will try this. Maybe even while I was sharing, there was a moment when there was some chaos in your life, a relationship, an organization, business deal, 
And that was like, oh, yeah, I don't want to engage with that. That's too much. And maybe in a moment of quiet and prayer, we say, okay, how can I, as a follower of Jesus, engage to bring peace there? Personally, relationally, organizationally, globally. This is what we do. We engage. And we do our best to try to bring the kingdom of heaven more here through the activity of peacemaking. Heavenly Father, thank you for being the ultimate peacemaker who has come down here to earth, who saw the chaos down here and engaged with us and brought our hearts and our souls and our being back together again. May we be inspired by your movement, by your extension of that love and peace to us to then continue on as your children to push that agenda forward in this world of bringing broken things back together, dysfunctional things back to functioning, unhealthy things back to health. And Lord, I know that this is hard. So I also pray for your spirit and for your courage and your wisdom for us to figure this out. Even though we'll make mistakes, we'll fall short, we may be uncertain at times. But we trust and believe that this way, this way that you have communicated to us is an amazing way of redeeming and rescuing this entire world, starting with our own souls. So help us to do that. And we pray in your name. Everybody said, Amen.